Hey, welcome back. Episode two of the Crypto Parabellum Podcast is your host, Jared Phillips, Alan Eschweiler. Alan, we made it to the second episode. We got pretty good reviews on the first one. How, uh, how you doing? I'm doing well. We got good feedback. I, I think, um, you know, you, you got to get the first one out of the way. Nerves are gone. We're rolling now. That's right. That's right. Now, really good stuff. I think that we touched on some good topics. I had a buddy who messaged me after listening to it. He sent it to a couple of his friends, too, which there were two things I thought were interesting I want to tell you about. One, he said, I sent it to one of my buddies who has traditionally been a Bitcoin maxi. Like, Bitcoin's the only thing worth owning. And he goes, have you guys actually convinced him to buy some Ethereum? And I hmm. said, hey, all right, interesting. It worked. If we change one mind uh, or open somebody's eyes, you know, that was worth it. Uh, the other thing that I thought was pretty funny, and he goes, uh, it was kind of, it was interesting. It was an interesting uh, conversation between two guys. Uh, it was almost like two analysts running like a crypto gossip show. And I was like, well, that's not exactly what we were going for, but yeah, all right. <laughs> I think I think that's like fair feedback. I also think that we'll we'll probably like figure out what sort of um, what sort of mode we fall into, right? Like yeah. I, I think we'll we'll figure out what we want to talk about along the way. It'll probably change. the The feedback that I got um, was that like either it, it seemed very um, advanced was the feedback that we got. Like, yeah. and so that's fine if that was our intention, and I think it was. Like, it, it was like you put in the yeah. show notes. The intention is like, we're going to talk about things uh, the way that we understand them. Um, you know, maybe we won't spend as much time uh, explaining the background. Um, but that was the feedback that I got was like, you know, a little higher level. I, I think that's what I want to go for. I think there's a ton of like, you know, BitBoy types out there who are like, this is why Dogecoin to the moon. You should buy it. Like all that kind of stuff. I don't want to fall into that. I want people who want to learn more, who want to see more. You and I have been in this for a long time and, um, hopefully we can give a veterans uh, approach and maybe not spend as much time on the one-on-one stuff, but, uh, we got an interesting show today. We got two, three topics that I think are going to dominate the majority of our time. And, uh, I'll lay them out there initially, and then we'll kind of go through them line by line, but it'd be, uh, you know, we'd be ignoring the elephant in the room if we didn't talk about the nomad hack that occurred yesterday the nomad bridge was hacked for uh, almost $190 million. So we're going to talk about that. Um, also, yesterday, breaking news, the SEC charged 11 people. SEC, Securities and Exchange Commission, charged 11 people in an alleged $300 million crypto Ponzi scheme. That'd be Forsage. Um, and then there's also something that's kind of new and breaking the way that crypto's traditionally been traded in, in so much as how you and I speak about it. And that's what GMX is doing, which I think is pretty interesting. So those are our three things, and we'll set that up a little bit further. But it's kind of a game changer, as you just uh, kind of set up to me. You know better than I do. But um, first off, with Nomad, I'm not sure people, anybody who listens to this even really knows about it as much as you and I might, because what an unbelievable shit show this was. Um, I, all I know is I got back to, I was out doing something and I came back in and all of a sudden I was getting alerts from friends who were like, oh man, Nomad's getting hacked right now. And in the matter of, of no time, almost $190 million had been drained from the Nomad bridge. 
So I'm going to set this up really quick and explain what a bridge is because I don't think a lot of people understand. And, and so a bridge, for people who don't know, you can essentially move from chain to chain, right? And, okay, how does that work? Well, Nomad, I think, is between like Avalanche, Ethereum, Evmos. Um, I'm missing a couple other ones. Hold on. Uh, doesn't matter. Like three, four other chains. So if you want to move your money from Ethereum to Avalanche, you could use the Nomad Bridge. What that does is essentially you put your money in their bridge. It sits on the bridge, and they essentially give you uh, kind of like a receipt to, uh, to use on the other side that you can use and redeem otherwise uh, to trade on-chain, knowing that whenever you're done, the money in and money out will be exactly the same. If I put in a dollar, there's a dollar being held. The chain has an agreement. It can be used. It's good for a dollar here because they know that dollar is real sitting in the bridge, right? So you put $50,000 in. There's $50,000 being held in the bridge. You can go trade. When it's time to bridge out, you know that money's going to be there. And there's also an agreement between the chain and the bridge is that they will essentially uh, settle their accounts as dollars come in and out, okay? So if there's $190 million sitting in the bridge, that's money that people use to move from one to another, and they're relying on that money to be there to essentially move back or to essentially settle these accounts, right? But if that bridge is drained, then that stops and people are left holding the bag. What was the big one? What was the one that Solana had? Uh, wormhole. Yeah. Wor- wormhole. So Wormhole was similar, right? Yeah, I, I, It's similar in the sense that it is a bridge and was exploited. Uh, I, I can't say whether the exploit was similar or not, but I, I think history has now shown that these bridges are sort of um, are ripe for attack because yeah. there's a lot of value locked inside of them. And if you can get access nefariously to one of these bridges, there's think of it as a very, very large bug bounty. And I think what's interesting about this one specifically is that at least, you know, from my very limited knowledge, was that this was fairly easily accessible. Absolutely. So maybe talk a little bit about that. Um, it, this seemed a bit more able to be done by the layman. And so this is maybe the first hack that we've ever seen, at least on a bridge, where you know the public watched on and said, oh, I could do that I too. I do that too. So, That's right. Yeah, yeah. So talk us through, <laughs> if you could, your understanding of what the exploit actually is and then how that led to, you know, any average Joe being able to sort of replicate that. Yeah. So essentially what happened was they did a bridge upgrade, um, which obviously you're meant to improve the performance of the bridge, right? Um, Not much of an upgrade in this case. (laughs) Not much of an upgrade in this case. But whenever something like that happens, it's ripe for people to come in and try to poke holes in it. Um, And without getting too technical, there was a misconfiguration where um, you need to have a proof or, or a confirmation of a wallet submitting a transaction. Um, I want to withdraw X amount, you know, and that lines up, the withdraw lines up with a submission, right? So they, they have to line up where if I'm, I'm trying to send point one through, I get point one back. And so there needs to be a check on either side of that. Did you put it in? Yes. Are you pulling it out? Yes. Okay. So uh, the oops on this was, during the upgrade, um, they they left a trusted route on, like, you don't have to have proven the in, okay? You can just withdraw out based on a previous deposit. So let's say that Jared 
sent through one wrapped Bitcoin and I withdrew it. Well, that obviously worked for me, but initially they had to confirm my address was the one in and the one out. Well, now all you had to do was find the previously approved in and anybody could go and rebroadcast that signal with a different out. So now Jared already got, I already got mine out, but Alan could go and look and say, all right, well, I'm going to go rebroadcast the same signal with the same request based on the same deposit transaction, but I'm going to change the out to my wallet. Except so, so, so that's in, what happened. You didn't have to do anything. You literally, all you had to do was go and find a previously approved transaction, put in your wallet, boom, and you're withdrawing a million dollars. I think it'll be interesting to see of the $190 million that were uh, impact, um, how much of that will be returned? Because my assumption is, is that a lot of people uh, saw this going on. Um, there, there's sort of a couple of different scenarios. One is someone saw this going on and said, I'm going to be a good actor. I know yeah. how to replicate this, but I intend to give the funds back. I'm going to go take as much as I can. In essence, yes. protecting those funds, that will be some people. Uh, another group of people will be, um, I was just sort of getting while well, the getting was good. I saw everyone yeah. else was doing it. I could easily replicate it as well. So I did. Oops. Right. I didn't really realize that I was doing that from a doxed address. Um, you know, I am not a nefarious, uh, intentioned person from the beginning. Uh, and, and so now I have this address with a bunch of history, pretty easily, uh, able to be identified. I better give this back. That's so right. of the 190 million, this might be one of those, those bridge hacks where we see some portion of those funds actually returned, um, which is I a think good we will. thing. The, yeah. the other part is, um, and the side that I always like to look into is like the the company or the team behind this bridge. I, I think, as you had mentioned, raised a fund recently. The hack was 190 million. Remind me, what was the fundraise most recently? Yeah, so in April, sorry, let me pull up the exact numbers. I don't want to get it wrong. Um, April of this year, the project revealed Coinbase Ventures, OpenSea, and five other major companies participated in a seed round, which landed Nomad at $225 million valuation. Okay. So they didn't raise 200 whatever million dollars. That no, was their valuation. That was to get to the valuation. Correct. <clears throat> All right. So let's, let's assume this. Like if it was any sort of like normal crypto this, this year uh, sized round, it was probably about 10% of the valuation. Okay. And so somewhere uh, 10 or under. So let's say they probably raised 20, 10 to 20, I would say is in the safe range. Unless sure. it's publicly available, we could find it. But that, that does not mean that they're going to be able to cover this from company funds. Um, and so now what happens? Wormhole was a unique scenario where Jump, which was sort of, um, I'm not sure of the structure, either developing Wormhole internally, or it was like a internal team that, that rolled out and then they funded yeah. it. Um, they covered that, right? So there was no impact. This is one where I don't see how it can be covered unless there's, you know, a really large portion of that 190 million was actually like white hat, uh, white hat or an individual who got in over their skis and says, Hey, I'm going to give this back. We will see. We, but it, it's not good for bridges because what this does no. is now creates fear everywhere else. Um, rightfully so, right? Bridges have been ripe for attack and they have been attacked. Um, I, I actually don't see the allure for these bridges that are sort of um, multi-chain maybe is the right word. So I'll yeah. speak about Avalanche for a second. I was fine. I felt comfortable using the Avalanche sponsor bridge. I felt like if you're the team developing Avalanche, you know, you have the best case of the a bridge that's going to be uh, 
work and there's a backstop. If anything yes. did go wrong, the team behind Avalanche Bridge, Avalanche, would have every incentive to make users whole. Otherwise, the chain's basically dead. It goes away. Correct. Yeah. So I don't like these like third party intermediaries where it is a bridge connecting multiple chains, but they have no direct link to the actual uh, end chains. Yeah, I, I could not agree more. Um, and it, it's interesting, just anecdotally, before I kind of go into the whole bridge um, theory, because you're 100% right that these third-party chains give me a lot of pause, of which one is a friend of, of mine, kind of ours, Layer Zero, is developing what should be the next generation of bridges, and I know the CEO very well. I <laughs> They're liable to this too. In fact, one of the biggest knocks on layer zero was exactly what you said. Like, hey, we're essentially trusting like two guys that, yeah, are well known, but it's not, they have the keys to just rug all this liquidity. Not that we're saying they would, we know they wouldn't, but do you feel good about the fact that there's like two key holders to tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars? So hold on, let me pause on that for a second. The interesting part about this hack is, one, I think there was quite a few white hat hackers, which is what they call that. They call them white hat hackers, the ones who hack with the intention of giving the money back. A few of them have already come forward to say, send me an email. I'll send you whatever. I have a theoretical question for you. If you saw this live, if you were watching it and you had the know-how and you saw, look, there's $190 million sitting there, what would you do? I personally would never touch it. I, I have way too many like eyes on everything that I do from a uh, regulation standpoint. That it's it, it's not worth being. The, yeah. So the I guess you're screwed because case. even if yeah, even if you touch it, you probably create a thousand more problems for yourself. See, my thing is, I thought, honest to God, if I was able to do something in the moment, I think I would have done it. I think I would have done it for as much as I possibly could and given it back. Because yeah, I mean, it's I think just that's bad, reasonable. man. Um, I think it's better right now. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I think that's reasonable. It's, it's sort of like we're in different situations, right? So I, I understand that. The, yeah. the white hack or excuse me, white hat makes sense. And I saw some posts on Twitter like, hey, I'm publicly disclosing that I participated in this exploit. I have every intention of get it, giving it back. Yeah. I did so to protect funds. Okay, that's right. Fine. Me, Alan, the individual, like everything that I do, I have to not report. And so like I don't feel comfortable reporting, hey, I stole $50 million, but trust me, it's for a really good cause. <laughs> It was yeah. for a really good cause, Gary Gensler, and I completely intend on giving it back, and I did. Also, please, IRS, uh, I'm not yeah. sure how this impacts my taxes, let's, but let's it was a flow-in of 50 million. Year. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, yeah. so yeah. no, I think most people should not touch it, but I understand I what agree. you're saying. I, yeah, it's I don't, just because I don't think for you have the same reason – well, liability. it's for the same reason you just talked about. This is a black eye for the crypto industry. It's something that happened and will continue to happen. Um, where if, if bridges are unsecure or they don't have the proper setup, then you're in a situation where this stuff is going to continue to happen because all this took was one upgrade where they didn't think twice about, about how the code should be written and $190 million are gone and major investors are now left with, okay, let's say it was $22 million among eight different investors. Let's say it's split evenly, right? You're all out a couple mil at this point. Um, if that's what you decided to raise to go into it, maybe less, maybe a million dollars, who cares? The point is that's gone now. That affects a lot. So are those people now hesitant to invest in crypto companies moving forward? Did that just cut mm -hmm. off bridges in terms of their risk appetite moving forward? I, I don't know. I mean, you're in this I, realm I, a lot more I, than I am. 
my gut reaction is I doubt it. Like okay. that that check size for just the couple names that that you sort of called out there is is really small. And yeah. so like they they probably have fifty bets of that similar size. Sure. And in a venture fund, you really only need two or so investments to to return the entire fund. So you know, yeah, they're they're going to probably write that off. Also, I don't know what the structure of the deal was. If you know, all of those people can lose their money. The bridge could continue. And the token might still have some, I don't know if there is a token. If there is a token, there's maybe still some value and those investors are fine. The investors are only hurt from a reputational standpoint. Now people aren't yeah. willing to use the bridge. The bridge doesn't have revenue and, and the equity is worthless. So what they'll move on to the next one. I mean, I, I, that's not, I don't worry about that in that case. Okay. Um, I think plenty of other bridges will raise money from plenty of other players. Now, maybe Coinbase Ventures and the other four that you mentioned, maybe they're like, yeah, that was our bridge play. We don't really want to make another bridge play, but there's right. plenty of others that want a bridge play. So I, I, I don't worry about that. Anecdotally. Okay. You know, because we talked about it over the past year, really it was almost a year ago that I started getting into Cosmos. Um, this is why I like Cosmos. Cosmos solved inter-blockchain uh, bridging. 100% solved. The problem is it's hard. It's hard to use. It's hard to get on. It's okay. hard to navigate. But IBC, inter-blockchain communication, works on a series of bonds, and it makes sure both sides of each part of every transfer within the cosmos is verified on both sides before funds are, are released. And it's part of the cosmos SDK, right? So if you're going to operate in the cosmos, those core tenants have to be followed. It essentially makes it unhackable, which is nuts. So they got that solved. When I first got into cosmos, I think there was like 26 chains. There's now like 100. There's, they're expecting there to be 200 by the end of the year. And IBC itself within Cosmos solved this issue. But you know what? Bridging in to Cosmos, got to use wormhole, got to use something. Mm. So okay. they still haven't solved that. You can do it from like an exchange, but that has its own risks. You can do it from Coinbase. You can do it from whatever. But within the, the whole... Uh, Cosmos itself, which I'm using Cosmos as like the, the broader ecosystem, not the token. They already solved this. I mean, we'd be happy to talk about it later. But the, the interesting part, and I'll kind of leave this here, is Vitalik has said once this upgrade is complete and they are actually, you know, into ETH 2.0 or 3.0, whatever the hell we're on now, he's 100% down with connecting with other chains and helping to facilitate that growth because he thinks it's required, excuse me, he thinks it's required for the growth of crypto overall. So I don't know. What do you think about that? I know you, you tried Cosmos. You didn't love it. Yeah, I, I don't. I mean, I think that user experience has to sort of be addressed first Yeah. Um, before you'll have any sort of like critical mass. Uh, I think there's a ton of really interesting chains doing very, um, niche sort of things. I, I'm not saying that Cosmos is necessarily uh, tackling a, a niche subject, but I think that as you have more and more and more chains, they're like, hey, we do this one thing really well. You don't have to worry about this one thing that you would do somewhere else. I just, I, I sort of like don't buy that yet. I am one of those people that I will be interested when 
the the proof is in the pudding. When yeah. when the user experience is sort of fleshed out, when the base layer protocols are there so that you can do all of the things that you need to do there, then I'll be interested. I understand that that means I'll miss out on the first 5X or the first 10X. Um, yeah. But I think that that's a safer bet. So like venture does this sometimes with companies as well. Um, you might talk to a VC who passes on you during the first round and your instinct might not be to go back to them to your second round because it's like, yeah, they already said no, they don't like the business. No, 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 oftentimes it's not that they didn't like the business. They just wanted you to prove everything that you said you were going to do. So they heard your case the first time. They said, hey, you've had 12 months to go do everything that you said you were going to do. Did you do it? And if the answer is yes, now I feel safer in that second bet. I understand I'm paying a higher valuation, but now I understand that you can at least deliver on what you said you were going to do. So if I had to place that back into like Cosmos or, or any other chain for that matter, I personally will miss the first 5X. I'll miss the first 10X, but I can, I can enter feeling a little bit more confident that there's a, clearly a solid team that can deliver. There's yeah. ecosystem partnerships built out so that there will be a larger playground for people to do things once they're there. And some of the initial hiccups have been sort of flushed out with smaller balances and smaller number of users. Then I'll, I'll get the next 5X or the next 10X, but I, I de-risked the first. So no, it, I think that makes just, sense. It's just personal preference. I think both are, are fine. Yeah. And, you know, particularly, I think for your risk profile and how you operate, that makes sense. I think even for me, I probably should operate that way too. Uh, but, but I don't, uh, and I, I have no problem, by the way, crypto is getting a huge rip right now. I know this is not topically relevant for a podcast, but I'm just looking over and watching it. Huge green bars. Uh, so the, <laughs> so I figured I'd say so, uh, the, the reason why I, I feel comfortable going on record and saying this, knowing that this probably will be called back in my face if I'm wrong, Cosmos is doing two things, right. That I think to your point, you said, show me the proof in the pudding when it's all done. The first one has to be security and they got that right first. Okay, so they started with security to go. This is what we want to get right first security. And the next one they're working on is since they have security right, you cannot do inter blockchain smart contracts if you do not have security right. They do have security right. They're building out interchain smart contracts, which to put a bow on this coming all the way through, this is not the Cosmos podcast. That's the only way that you get a UI, a GUI. For normies to operate in a decentralized environment that is palatable where you don't have to worry about, you know, using MetaMask, right? Because you could do it in an environment that is built the way that they're trying to build it out. So I'm going to stake my, my, put my flag in the ground and say, we're going to revisit this six months, a year, two years, five years from now. And you're going to go, son of a bitch, Jared was right. No, and that's fine, right? Like, I, <laughs> I hope that that is the case. I want you to get your 10X. And then when everything's figured out, you know, I'll get the next. But, I'll say um, this. I, if I'm right, that's a hundred X. That's not a 10 X. Okay. But I'll get you, I'll let you know when it's 10 X, you'll ride the last night. Okay. Sounds good. <laughs> um, we should, we should move yeah. to the SEC charges 11 people in a $300 million Ponzi scheme. Um, yes. This is just the next, the, the, the one of many that have been sort of found as uh, a Ponzi scheme wrapped up in a blockchain wrapper. So walk me through this, set the stage for me. Um, this sounds to me like everything else, uh, the, the last couple that we've had. Yeah, so essentially Forsage has been charged with running a $300 million, $300 million Ponzi scheme out of, I think it was the Philippines. 
Uh, yep, out of the Philippines, where essentially this they did run smart contracts. They did have a blockchain. However, uh, every bit of their uh, promised returns were all 100% based on recruiting in more people. So essentially, early returns were paid out with new recruiters coming in. So saying, hey, you got to get in. This is the next big thing. Let me go do this. Put yours in. Look, there's these guaranteed returns, um, so on and so forth. So what's interesting is, uh, so four of the seven that are, four of the 11 that are charged are founders of Forsage, uh, living in Russia, Republic of Georgia, Indonesia. And this is what makes the SEC go crazy, where they're like, we're allowing people to be predators in the retail environment, right? Uh, and they're in locations that we cannot control. However, do you remember, la- this is why I wanted to bring this up, last year. Do you remember it felt like there was like a four, five month period, maybe even less, two to three month period, where you saw all of these personalities, celebrity and otherwise, shilling crypto tokens, coins, exchanges, that you were like, what the fuck? Do you, I mean, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I mean, I specifically felt it more on the NFT side of things. So, like, I, I, I don't know if that's exactly what you mean. But, like, um, a perfect example that I can think of that I don't think is completely nefarious. It's sort of just getting a bag when it's there. There's a, a Post Malone music video. And in the Post Malone music video, it just, uh, like, uh, a five-second screen right in the middle of the music video. He's, like, scrolling on his phone, opens the, like, what is it, MoonPay or something like that yeah. app, and yeah. he's buying a board Ape. And it turns out the board ape was just gifted to him by MoonPay in, in exchange for the uh, the you know the ad placement. It was something like a 400k placement. To me, that's advertising. But yeah. you saw a ton, especially it seemed like rappers were super susceptible to this. It was like Absolutely. every like mid to low tier rapper was like shilling some uh, yachty coin or some exactly like, NFT project. Uh, and so, like to to me, that was a top signal. Like though that's one of many types <laughs> of things we saw the first time the Katy Perry uh, crypto nails remember that from 2017 <laughs> right it's like it, and as an investor you can look for those again next time when things start yeah. to get absolutely ridiculous it's like all right we are way over our skis um, it, it's time to start selling down my positions I probably won't catch the top um, but it's start it's time to start selling my positions because yeah. Yachty coin and post Malone moon pay board apes, like this comes to an end at some point and, you know, it ended up being correct, but uh, not to go too far off the subject. No, no, no. That, so that sets it up perfectly because essentially this is why it's intriguing to me. The SEC also charged three U S based promoters who endorsed Forsage on the social media platforms. Mm-hmm. They're unnamed in the release. I am fascinated about who that might be. And the yeah, ramifications why, of what's going to come from that. Why would they be unnamed? Were, were the founders named? I mean, I guess you could go look up who the founders are. So uh, in this article, it doesn't say it, but I imagine that it was somewhere. Um, as the complaint alleges, Forsyth, blah, 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 wrote Carolyn Welshans, acting chief of the SEC's crypto assets and cyber unit. Yeah, it doesn't say uh, in this release. I'm sure it is if you actually went to the actual uh, complaint itself. Yeah, I, but, yeah. I think... I would have, I have a little bit of caution there. One, it's like if you knowingly promote a Ponzi scheme, I think that's one thing. But what I don't like is the gray, the potential gray area or slippy, a slippery slope that this could open. For instance, yeah. let's say I'll, I'll use you as an example, um, just as a, you know, a whipping boy sure. in this case. But yeah. let's say you 
you buy in to the narrative, to the meme, right? Like you, you have clouded judgment, but you fully believe it. And you're talking about something that you're passionate about. And that, that passionate project ends up being either fraudulent or doesn't work out or, you know, X, Y, Z. Are you, are you now liable? I don't like the idea of that because that requires me before having any sort of like interest or hobby. Now taking paid promotion is different, but just an interest or a hobby going out and saying, I like this thing. I think this thing is cool. I'm invested in this thing. I think you should be able to do that. But if that means that you are now liable for any future failure that that project or team has, that's, that's a really scary thought because most of these will fail. That, that is the reality. And I think people feel like this is some new paradigm the crypto space is just a sped up version of, in my opinion, going back to you know my area of interest, venture. Okay, so yep. you are making speculative bets, just like a VC is, on small projects or companies that may or may not turn into something. Most of them will turn into nothing. Those are your odds. 90% of the time, they will turn into absolutely nothing. And so if your risk is now 90% of the time, anything you talk about publicly will end in a bad event, whether it's fraud or failure or blow up or hack, and you're not liable for that. I don't find that to be a very interesting space anymore, because if you can't talk about anything, why talk at all? Uh, and and so I don't like this slippery slope that that might create. However, yeah. and I think, you know, we'll, we'll find out more information as it sort of comes out. But in this case, if those three or four people that were in the United States were, were being paid by the organization and they had prior knowledge and, and the SEC can prove that they had prior knowledge that this was a Ponzi scheme, that's different. But if the if the burden of proof is not necessary and they say this turned out to be a fraud, and so whether you knew about it or not, you are now culpable, I don't like that. Yeah. So I, I understand what you're saying and I, I agree with you, but I think that has a lot to do with the country you live in. I think Europe has a lot more strict rules than we do actually. That's why if you ever notice, if you ever watched any like the big, uh, like TA streamers, the guys in Europe, they are over the top with not financial advice, do your own research. Like this is what I'm doing. Uh, not telling you to do this yourself. This is purely for entertainment purposes. I think the burden of, uh, proof to your point is a lot harder in the United States to actually prove that you did something like, you know, I knew it was, I knew it was garbage and I did it anyway. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I think just like the mere implication, if that, if that causes harm in a lot of other countries, I think you're on the hook. And the problem is this is where this all gets very, very um, muddled because like we just said, uh, Russia, Republic of Georgia, Indonesia, it's out of the Philippines. People are transacting everywhere. All you need is one country that says, yes, we believed that to have violated our rules. And if there's any sort of like extraditionary rule with the United States, you could be sued. It doesn't mean you have to hold up for it necessarily. And it doesn't mean the USA will actually allow you to do that, but it can make your life pretty difficult abroad. Sure. Yeah. So I'm I'm curious in that. At the end of the day, the SEC is getting more active. Uh, You know, we, we saw Coinbase, the insider trading. Uh, We see the investigation into exchanges. Those are just the things that are public. My, my expectation is that there are probably a lot of other things that are going on sort of behind closed doors, because think about it. If you're an exchange, 
or an individual and you receive an SEC inquiry or a project, a crypto project, it is not in your best interest to start talking about it uh, and no. say like, hey, hey, we're being investigated, right? Like, you know, we <laughs> think we're doing everything right, uh, but we're being investigated. And so my assumption is just like uh, Coinbase and Ripple are being a bit more like um, uh, loud about what's going on. There are a lot of things that are not quite as loud. Uh, yeah. If they're being this active with the big players, they're probably being just as active with medium players. I would say the small players are probably skipping by, just not big enough to care because, or to matter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, and so I don't expect this news to stop. So that is a decent segue because the SEC getting more active leads me to regulation. We've seen even since 2017 to today, if you want to trade derivatives, if you want to trade crypto, it's exceedingly hard to do legally, right? Like not, not just in the U S yes. In the U S in the U S. Yeah. So like in all, pretty much everywhere else, it doesn't matter. You can well, Europe is like. it's very difficult as well. The U is it? It's becoming more difficult. I mean, okay. it's easy to, it's easy to skirt around. Like if you want to do it compliantly. Yes. Okay. Okay, but it's easier to skirt and like not have any issues. But regardless, it's not easy to do legally. Is I guess the phrase, right? Okay, I think that's a fair, uh, fair, uh, yeah, yeah. So um, obviously, I'm a trader, and so um, I try to find ways to trade. I've traded on Coinbase Pro for a while, which is garbage. Uh, everybody knows that. I think they even know that, you know, they remove leverage. You can't take short positions. You know, Coinbase is what it is. And so you look for solutions. However, there are new solutions that are coming up and finding new ways to get around, not around, but like new ways to trade. And there's still no real like laws on this. Um, and we were talking about GMX's rise and what GMX is and how they're, uh, sorry, of course my mother FaceTimes me, um, how, they're, uh, how they're building something that's pretty unique and, and calls a lot of these questions into, into you know, mine. So let me kind of pa pass it over to you because you have the best background to talk about this, I think, of probably anyone who's out there. So would you mind setting this whole thing up a little bit and kind of uh, into GMX? Yeah, sure. So let me take a step back before even GMX yeah, and talk please. about sort of like the landscape for derivatives trading um, it, anywhere. But let's talk about the, the U.S. because you brought up Coinbase uh, Pro as sort of like your your option for trading, obviously not derivatives. But um, I think that derivatives will come to the U.S. eventually. Uh, this this is my like shameless plug for FTX U.S. I, I like what they're doing. They're definitely starting down the path to be able to offer something like that. They acquired Ledger X, which does um, uh, options and, and margin trading. Uh, that then got rebranded to FTX US derivatives. So, you know, you, you tell me where that goes. They're, right. I, in my opinion, they get to a place where that FTX US derivatives ends up merging into your direct FTX US account. They already sort of have the ability, to, I believe, to sort of move assets back and forth really easily. Um, and so, and, and then we saw Sam at the round table really take a, a, an aggressive uh, stance to some of the um, derivative players saying, you are talking down to your clients. You're saying that the people that want to trade these instruments don't understand them. And his 
for lack of, of a perfect direct quote was, I'll be honest with you, after sitting here today, the customers who trade on FTX.com understand these products better than the people sitting around this table. And so like when you say things like that, I think, and, and the acquisitions and sort of the, the, the public facing moves, I think they are moving towards a place where derivatives become available in the US and they become a very, very large player. So that aside, I think there's an option or there's a future for centralized derivatives in the United States. Not today, not this year, uh, but yeah. someday. And, and they're sure. spending a lot of money and time and a lot of smart people are thinking about that. So that is the centralized side. Then there's the decentralized side. There's op opportunities or, or projects like DYDX, which is a derivatives uh, perpetual, I guess, yep. exchange. Uh, however, they now operate under um, geofencing and some level of know your customer. Uh, and so are you really doing decentralized trading at that point? I, I don't really understand that. Um, so then that leads to, to GMX. So let me give a couple like personal disclosures before I talk sure. about any of this. Um, I own GMX token. Um, I've talked about GMX on Twitter and I also worked with GMX for a very short period of time. I do not anymore. Um, for, for two months, I had a contract to sort of advise them on their, um, uh, referral structure. So those, those are my personal disclosures and, and like, you know, what I have in it, but yeah. I obviously like this. I like the idea of this mostly because of the structure of actually what it is. So GMX is a seemingly fully anonymous decentralized exchange where you have the ability to margin trade. Um, and what's cool about this is that you're actually trading against a pool of assets. So there is no market maker on the decentralized exchange. Um, they have a dual token model. So they have GLP, which acts as a liquidity provision. And then they have GMX, which is the project's token. So um, what's cool about GLP is it allows you or I or anyone else to operate as the house. So imagine you providing liquidity at any time in any direction. Just you are betting that the user who is using that liquidity is going to lose money in the long term. And for most traders, that's accurate. Right, so imagine you are the house in the casino. Most margin derivatives exchange, uh, uh, traders will lose money over the long term. In fact, like little known fact, most derivative exchanges, their customer life cycle is somewhere between six months and eight months. They know that the average user that deposits to an account will completely blow up that account in six to eight months. Some oh will my be much, God. Some will be much longer than that. Some will be much shorter than that. But that is the average. Um, and so... What I like is being able to be the house in that case. So let me let me describe GLP in a little bit more detail. Yeah, you take any any asset. Uh, it could be USDC. It could be Bitcoin. It could be Ethereum. You place that in the pool, and that pool ask, acts like an index. So the pool holds some Bitcoin, some Ethereum, some Avalanche, some USDC, and that basket goes up and down with the overall market you have about 0.5 volatility toward to the market. So if you deposit $100,000, half of that on average is in stablecoin exposure. Half of that is in this basket of crypto assets. Sure. A user on the other side can say, hey, I want a long Bitcoin. You are providing, you're loaning them the Bitcoin to do that. If they are successful, you as the house lose. If they are unsuccessful, you and the house 
as the house win. So not only are you playing the, as the house, you're collecting a fee. So imagine you, Jared, have to pay me, Alan, to take the other side of every single one of your trades. You have to pay that fee. And anytime you lose, I win. That is GLP in a nutshell. And so I, I think GMX is really cool uh, for that reason. It allows yeah. you to provide liquidity, almost be the market maker in that case, and just bet on the idea that a user is going to lose over time. Now, um, they pay you in a yield. So I think the yield bounces sort of around, but that yield on crypto assets that you deposit, which is only 50% exposed to the market, hovers generally around 30%. Sometimes higher, sometimes lower. But sure. I, I think that's really cool because you're, yeah. you stay exposed to crypto's upside or downside to a, in a muted volatility level while also getting 30% a year. So I like it for that reason. But one of the things that they've done really, really well is user acquisition. So acquiring users for an exchange is incredibly hard. Binance has done it well. FTX has done it well. And those are sort of the very few exchanges that came out of last cycle that did it well. There's yeah. tons, 50 maybe, 50 exchanges that said, we have the secret sauce, but you can't acquire any users. That's right. And so what GMX has been able to do, which I think is cool, is act as a, a liquidity solution for different swap protocols. So they say, hey, if you think that you're going to be the next uh, latest and greatest swap protocol and you just need liquidity, tap into GMX's pools. We'll provide the liquidity. You can do the front end. You can go acquire the users. And that's been great for them. There, there's a site, stats.gmx.io. It sort of shows all of the high-level metrics that you might care about. And the thing that I like to watch is sort of the fees, uh, the total users, and the, um, what is it titled as? I'm looking right now, swap sources. So you can see all the different swap sources, GMX, One Inch, Socket Tech, Open Ocean, all of these different protocols that have sourced GMX liquidity because it's on-demand liquidity. Hmm. If you want to trade Bitcoin, the liquidity is always there and you will get it with no slippage. Uh, and so as a trader, that is attractive to you. Yeah. Um, so I, I think why GMX has sort of been in the, the crypto news lately is um, it's continued to do really well uh, in terms of network effect. It's gone out and find, found those partnerships and said, hey, you go acquire the users, you go build the front end, we'll just be your liquidity on the back end. And the bet continues to be most traders lose money. If you believe that, you're willing to provide liquidity. I think it's cool. Um, and, and so, I mean, the the GMX token is obviously driving attention to the protocol. The price action is interesting recently. It's, it's up something like 100% in the last 30 days. And so anytime that happens, as you know, there's going to be new attention on the protocol. Yeah. But to me, the the model that they are following, which is revenue generation to a token, is interesting. More protocols need to build like this and not a token that does absolutely nothing but emit rewards. This is a revenue generating protocol that operates like an exchange that returns value back to the token rather sure. than everything else that returns value back to the company. And they have this ancillary token that does absolutely nothing. <laughs> uh, so I, I, th that's sort of uh, an intro to, to GMX. And, and I, I think you're right. And I, I really enjoyed watching GMX uh, launch initially. And I was a big holder. I never had anything. I don't have anything now. Um, but I did just pull up the stats.gmx.io to look at their fee progression over time. And oh, my God, um, that is impressive. 
in terms of how that has grown and how their fees are improving month over month. It's not quite that linear, but while things have been going pretty bad, they've been doing pretty well. Um, so I am impressed. And you're right. You do see GMX, One Inch, obviously quite a few others. Dodo, I don't know what that is. Uh, Gelato, but like other people that are that are tapping into this. And as someone who's looking to debank as quickly as possible uh, and try to find ways to stop using any sort of centralized resource, which is what my goal is. I love seeing this. And I've actually, I've actually never traded on it. Um, maybe I should try because I'd be curious just to know what it's like from the other side, but you're right. I am all about long-term bets where I can play uh, a I can 30% yield and I'm betting against traders, not finally figuring it out when they never have, like that's a pretty good, pretty good investment opportunity. Yeah, I, on the stats page, halfway down the page on the right side, there's traders net PL as a graph. Um, oh my god! And and maybe you can edit this in and, and put the graph up on the on the screen. But um, the cumulative PL since the start, you can kind of see it's just a slow trend down, down, down. So traders total over the entire lifetime of the platform have lost thirty five point eight million dollars. So that yep. is outside of fees, right? Because that's just net losses. That $35.8 million got paid back to everyone providing liquidity. And in exchange for providing that liquidity, not only did you get the losses of traders, you also got paid every time they wanted to take that trade. So it's like running a roulette table. And every time, Jared, you want to spin, you have to pay me $5 just to be able to spin. And then you're going to lose most of the time too. <laughs> that is uh, outstanding. I mean, it, the the crazy thing about it is it's not like traders don't know this, but if you, if you've ever wondered, I have this, the, the graph up on the screen for anybody who watches this on YouTube later on. Um, I'm going to take it down now, but this, it's at this bottom right corner. Um, it's not that traders don't know that. And the secret sauce of trading just real briefly from like the traders mentality is not actually being like a TA whiz. It's not, this is like, this is the best advice that I will give to anybody at any time, anywhere about trading. And it isn't even really advice. It's knowing when to take a loss. $35 million of people who didn't know when to accept a loss and cut their position before it got away from them. And these are people that are smart enough to trade on chain. Like you have to be into crypto to know how to do this. And they've lost to the tune of $35 million. That is and crazy. Not, so it's not just the fact that you have to be, you know, savvy enough to be on chain. On top of that, they've launched on two chains, Arbitrum yeah. and Avalanche. So not only do you have to be willing to trade on chain, you then also have to be either like advanced enough or, or, or willing enough to go to Avalanche or to go to Arbitrum. So I would imagine that the subset of traders that trade on chain is small. And then even smaller than that is one that's willing to bridge to Ethereum or, or excuse me, uh, Arbitrum, Arbitrum or, yeah. or uh, bridge to, to Avalanche. So my hope is that they continue to launch to other uh, chains because I think the model has been proven. Uh, I, I think the model works and I hope that more and more projects launch with models like this. Yeah. Be a business, generate revenue at some point in your existence and return it to token holders. If you don't, people are getting smart enough to see that a token generally is just some emission reward and you yep. continue to be diluted to zero. 
Um, you saw that with projects like uh, Mercurial on Solana. Mm -hmm. Great idea, great execution, amazing team, terrible token design. And so the yeah. tokens went to zero very, very slowly. The protocol is great, makes tons of money. The team's, you know, the team's seeing revenue increase month over month. The token only goes down. So, um, <laughs> and I've told them that. So hopefully they listen to this again. Uh, but I, I, I mean, think it's funny this though is the model to follow. And, and that is interesting. And we're, we're running low on time here. But um, last thing I'll say kind of as we go out is I think I would posit that the next wave, if there is a next wave, which I think there will be, it might be a while from now, is going to be buoyed in projects like this. And the reason why I say that is at the start of this cycle, like I remember my first alts and like some of the things that I got into, I didn't know what the hell they did. I was riding a wave and to the, a lot of degrees, you still are riding waves right now, but you're getting more sophisticated investors. You're getting more uh, real investors involved in this now. And I would imagine that the next cycle will actually be prove to me how you are creating revenue and how you're directing it to the token. And if you can't prove that, you're not going to actually have anything more than like a single day pump and dump. And so I hope, I mean, that'd be great for legitimacy. It'd be like when the dot-com bubble ended and then you were like, okay, it's not just like, I, you know, pets.com or what was the famous one that, that, that folded up after raising a couple hundred million dollars? Like yeah. things that actually do things and create revenue, not just have an interesting idea. I think that's where we are in the evolution of crypto right now. So if I could end it on this, um, as just a, a bit of information out there, where I found GMX and where you can find other projects that generate revenue, if that's interesting to you, um, it, it's a they have a premium service, but the free service works just fine. It's called Token Terminal. They do a really good job. They're not perfect, but they do a really good job at uh, putting out information on protocols that generate revenue and show you what percentage of, the, of that revenue uh, is directed back to either a native token they have or you know some token ecosystem. So that's how I found GMX back in the day is like I am really passionate about business. I'm really passionate about the idea that <laughs> businesses have to generate revenue someday. And if crypto projects are going to be businesses, then they have to do that. I found ter Token Terminal. It's the best one that I've found. If yeah. anyone knows of one out there, let us know because I think For that sure. would be really interesting to cover in the future. Um, but yeah, that, that's where you can find information on protocols that are revenue generating. Uh, one slide at the end of that, I believe I first told you about GMX and then you researched it. So that's, you know, okay. That, that could be, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. I, I honestly um, don't it, remember. That's possible. I, I do remember that I was like, there's something interesting in GMX that you learned way more about it than I did. So that's how that goes. But anyway, Alan, I'm glad we got this in, man. I know you got to run here. So I'm going to do our little outro. We got an outro now. Nice. And uh, we will be back next week. This is the end of episode two of the Crypto Parabellum podcast with Jared Phillips and Alan Eschweiler. Thank you. Like, subscribe, follow us on Twitter. We have a logo now. Uh, and we will see you all next week. Thanks. See you next week. <laughs>